Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to episode 8 of The Queen Pod. We're back, it's lovely. And I'm going to introduce my dear cohorts. Oh no, she must away to her mum in disarray. It's comedian and singer Suze Kempner. <laughs> Hi, Rove, thanks hey, for that. Suze. You don't Thank look you. disarray at all. You've got a wonderful Queen 2, what is it, a I frock? I do. It's, it's actually it's a man's t-shirt because they didn't have a ladies one available so I cut the arms off in defiance. Ah, I see. Ah, self-made clothing, to, I love it. To show off my Covid shoulders. Oh yeah, gosh, I hope you're feeling okay. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> <That's all> good. <clears throat> Recommended at the price, it's Queen documentarian Simon Lupton. Hello. How much I'm... do you cost? <laughs> <laughs> More than you could afford, that's for sure. I don't think so. 
I've got a I'm pound. very excited to be here, actually. I love this album, so I'm really, I'm really pumped. It is exciting, isn't it? We do it love, is. We do love this album. Oh, just give him a good guitar and you can say his hair is a disgrace. It's comedian John Robbins. <laughs> Hello. I thought I'd get one that actually works for you there. My, my my hair is a disgrace at the moment. It's sort of I'm in. It's my second lockdown cut, and it's incredibly high. So I need to get. I need to get it. Oh yeah. I mean, my second lockdown growth. Oh yeah. It has, it's <laughs> so I've already had one haircut. Head. Yeah. It's good though. I like it. Uh, it's great. And you've you got Fred on your t-shirt there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, there he is. Beautiful. Uh, it's from it's the cover of Mr. Bad Guy, and I was uh, in Edinburgh about ten years ago, and Carl Donnelly was wearing. Uh, this T-shirt, and I just wouldn't shut up about where he got it from and how much I wanted it. And um, two days later, I was in my dressing room, and uh, there was a package for me, and he'd uh, he'd given me the T-shirt and wrapped it in a ribbon. That's so oh. Carl. It's one of the He's best presents I've man. ever had. <laughs> That's beautiful. There seems to be a trend of people sending you T-shirts that you really like. <laughs> yeah, well, if you just whine enough, <laughs> because because often like companies. Uh, I think um, H&M did it a while ago. They brought out like a Freddie Mercury T-shirt. But as soon as I'd been told about it, they stopped doing it. So oh. I just had to keep talking about it until someone sent me one, which they did. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, if anyone wants to send me a Queen T-shirt, medium, please. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, I am forever searching high and low, but why does everyone tell me Roe? Because it's my name and I'm the host. Hello. All right. Uh, we are on for the Queen Pod. And today, after a, a couple of wonderful weeks away, looking at Smile and talking to gorgeous Tim Staffel, um, we are back to the works of the album. Today, we are starting to look at Sheer Heart Attack, which is an exciting, exciting thing. But before we do that, we've got a section of the show that we like to call Queen of the Champions. We are the champions. We are the champions. No time for losers. We are the champions. So... This is when we have uh, a little chat about any Queen moments we've had over the last uh, uh, week or so since we last met. Um, my stamps are still lost in the post. That's my update on that. Uh, but I'm so I'm producing a little kids show. This is an awful plug, really. But shout out to my, Judge Smudge and my Monster Court crew. And I'm just not getting time to sit for four hours with Royal Mail waiting to get through to someone to say, give me my stamps. Um but my other little queen moment of the week was, uh, uh, I, I'm guessing that most people out there are now familiar with the fact that Cobra Kai has uh, landed on Netflix and everyone's kind of watching it. You guys are aware of this, the sort of sequel to Karate Kid? Yeah, I've seen it's there. It was on YouTube originally, wasn't it? And yeah, it's on it was a YouTube show and it is it is an absolute joy to watch. It really is. They're little half hour episodes of pure joy. And of course, they use a lot of... White Snake and Rat and mm. you know really fantastic um, you know Foreigner Boston all the Poison all these kind of eighties tracks uh, and this is a minor spoiler it's just the fact that there's a Queen connection but at a particular point in an amazing place uh, can I say the track is it too much producer Giles 
I've never heard of the program you're talking about, so I think you're probably <laughs> fine. I told you about the track as a way of getting you to watch the show. So I <laughs> okay, all right. So at a very, very wonderful moment in the series, the show opens, one of the episodes opens with I Want It All. And it made me just leap up in my room, put both hands up in the air and go, yeah! <laughs> and it queued up just the most wonderful episode. It was a mighty Queen moment. Uh, but they also so, yeah. they also finish an episode with the show must go on. They do. Point. That's in the same very series. nice yeah. ending. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, it I, might even be I the same app. That would only have been a spoiler if Queen had a song called "Mr. Miyagi Dies at the End." <laughs> 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 or more accurately, "Mr. Miyagi Dies Off Screen." So, uh, okay, um, that happened. That's true. So. Uh, Let's see. Oh, uh, anyone else got any lovely little Queen moments that they would like to share? I uh, have one. My team of thousands of Queen minions who keep me abreast of important Queen events on Twitter, uh, someone alerted me, and let me make sure I get their name right, Um, Joe W. Refford, or Joe Refford, um, on Twitter alerted me to uh, a Zoopla house listing and uh, I I clicked on it because my, my interest was piqued by the fact that the house has the cover art of Queen 2 painted on their garage door. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's a very sort of unassuming uh, detached house in Eastbourne uh, offers in the region of 400 grand and the the entire garage door is the four faces and the black background off the cover of Queen 2 it's very striking but what I loved is that you get so there's like 20 images of the house on the website and you go through and there's not a single other Queen related <laughs> thing in the entire house it's just like you know, there's a sort of a canvas print of uh, Wonder Woman. There's things on the window saying, you know, happiness, peace, Prosecco, that kind of stuff. Um, it's just very normally decorated. And then in the description, it makes no reference to it whatsoever. <laughs> apart from right at the very end, which is talking about each individual room. Under the garage, it says, the garage comes with power and lighting and an over-up door. Option to paint over if required. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it added value to the house or loss? Absolutely, I think it yeah. added at least 50k. <laughs> I, I bet the neighbours had concerns when that was first put up yeah. there. Yeah. But it's such a, it's a great canvas, actually, a garage door. It is. And you would have thought more people would be perhaps a little bit inventive with their garage doors. And perfect for album art as well, to the right size. Yeah. What, what album art would you put on your garage door? Me personally? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, probably Hot Rats, the front cover of uh, Frank Zappa's Hot Rats. Got him in again. <laughs> oh, dear. Just relentless. Um, We've only started five minutes. With a woman coming over the, coming over the wall like that. No, I, I don't know it. <laughs> okay, all right, fine. If you end up making me listen to Frank Zappa, I'll, I'm, I'm never going to forgive you. Okay, thank you, John. That was brilliant. Uh, and we are now going to talk uh, uh, with our, all of our fan stuff in a section we like to call Love of Our Lives. Love of my life, 
We've had loads and loads of feedback from uh, wonderful Queen fans and listeners out there. It's been lovely to hear. And I've got a little update on a seven degrees of rye with regards to Brian teaching. Oh, you excited? I'm excited. So at Oliver Carey one uh, drops us a little note on, uh, I think it was on Twitter where we're at the Queen pod and on Instagram and pointed that Brian May taught Polly Styrene, who was the lead singer of a punk band called the X-Ray Specs. Sadly, she passed in uh, 2011. But before that, she did give this interview in Viva Rock magazine. Question being, there's this great story that you and your friends gatecrashed Queen's rehearsals in Kensington. We wasn't really gatecrashing. It's just that Brian May was my school teacher, my maths teacher, and we just happened to be in Bieber's. He used to rehearse in the top in the roof gardens, and our teacher used to come out and see us there because we'd skipped games or something, and he'd say, girls, what are you doing here? He was still on duty. I did run into him years later outside the Krishna temple and I sort of bumped into him. He was there parked with his son and he asked me, are you married? Because I used to ask him that in school. So are you married? So if you're married, why doesn't your wife iron your shirts? (laughs) (laughs) I used to have a little thing going with him about that in class. It was just a joke. You know, I was a bit naughty. I was in a special maths group, underachievers. I wasn't good at maths and he was one of the supply teachers, especially for us difficult ones. He was a student teacher and we knew there was a difference. He used to come in with long hair and holes in his shoes and we used to tease him a bit. He was not, he was very good actually, very good teacher. He used to say, do you want to learn maths or not? Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like he'd be like, he's like great? proper teacher. Yeah. It's my That's time amazing. you're wasting. I bet he said that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's I your love... time you're wasting. See, I wouldn't be a good teacher. <laughs> you just don't fundamentally understand the maths of wastage. Um, yeah, I do, I, but I love, it's so evocative. You could just absolutely picture him in that story. Yeah, it's so very him, isn't it? The whole thing. Loved it, um, and also uh, I've got a little update on this uh, mystery from our album ranking episode of who this mysterious cream designer. Do you remember all that? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. right. The cover and, art. Yeah. Uh, Nick points at NJS points did some digging for us, and he found out the Cream Group seemed to have been an agency in London and Amsterdam who did album covers for various artists like uh, Elton John, Cliff Richard, White Snake, to Power, and so. So forth. Um, there is one designer that he's found from that group and who has a website. And I might even drop him a line and say, Hey, did you do news <laughs> of the world or what? Uh, but there we go. That has, that has, um, that has really kind of scratched an itch. So we now know what the mystery to that is, which is wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, and I think we might even have an update on the controversy about around uh, Brian's use of wire pedal. Is that right, Simon? Yes, we do. We do have a bit of a, uh, a bit more information on this um, because I was uh, fortunate enough to actually spend some time last Friday um, with uh, Brian May. What? And I took the opportunity uh, in a quiet moment to ask him because as listeners <laughs> will legend. recall... Well, as listeners <laughs> will recall... Um, we discussed how there was a wire pedal used on Great King Rat, and then I think it was—is his name underscore Phil or something or Phil Someone the like underscore that, yeah, yeah. something? Like I that. think it's something like the the underscore real underscore Phil underscore actually or something like that. Yes, <laughs> him. Uh, he yeah. he 
added the possibility or the or asserted should i say that brian also used the wild pedal on give me the prize sure. which all of us are happy to take underscore phil at his word but felt actually really we should have some kind of two-step verification on this <laughs> would you I go saw. as far as to say he asserted under no uncertain terms well i was being polite but yes you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well john threw the gauntlet down at you and then you what <laughs> yeah so so I went and asked him because he was one of the few people that we felt could oh, that's amazing. clarify this. Um, unfortunately, he didn't, we didn't have a chance to record what he said, but um, I, I can say that our, our producer, uh, Giles, was with me at the time, so can verify this is what? how it went down. Where so, were we? Um, so this is what Brian said. Um, uh, so I said, is it true? Did you use it on Give Me the Prize? And he went, hmm... Give me the prize. Interesting. I can't remember. I might have done. Hmm, possibly. <laughs> Actually, I think I probably did. So, yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, that's conclusive proof, uh, if proof, proof if proof be need be, that Brian May could possibly have used <laughs> yes. war on Give Me the Prize, but he's not sure. He's not sure. He can't remember, which is fair enough. He did say that he used the wild pedal quite a lot uh, you know just nudging it to give another color which was another point that i believe john made in our previous podcast that it was a way of sort of you know creating a, a, t- a slight change in the tone and brian said for example when he wanted the red special to sound like a trombone he would use that gently to sort of help ah. modulate that but there is another song where he used the wild pedal <gasps> in addition to Great King Rat oh. and oh, wait, wait. Can we guess what it is though before you tell us? You can have a go. Is it possible to guess? I don't think it is. Is it? But is it? Is it an album track or is it in live versions of album, an album track? track? Is it the no. Sleeping on the Sidewalk? That's not the one he gave me. I mean, I'm not going to say no because he quite possibly might. As we've dis- as we've ascertained, the use of wild yes. pedal is nebulous he, at best. He may have <laughs> used wild pedal on every song. Um, That's not the one he gave me. Uh, Drowse? You're never going to guess. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll stop guessing. He used it on Delilah. It's how he made uh, the cat meow. No way! Yes. Oh, well, we have to hear a little bit of the cat right now. Yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah. although Brian, I think, referred to it as Fred's Pussycat Song. Yes, that's what he called it. Yeah. Oh, why didn't, why didn't we all get an invite on the WhatsApp group yeah. to this meeting? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Are you allowed to say what you would, you two were doing with Brian May on last Friday? Unfortunately, it's not for me to announce what it was that we were doing. It, but it. Was... Well, are you able to confirm what he was wearing and what he smelt like and what his vibe was? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what his vibe was good? Because as you know, he's not been at all well uh, mm. over, the, over yeah. the summer, and um, he was on really good form. And um, yeah, we were we were filming something that involved him looking like a rock god with his guitar and and he certainly did so um he was i think he was happy to be back doing what he does what shoes did he have on what was he eating (laughs) you know i did have a conversation with him about his shoes because i asked if they were vegan because i know he likes vegan shoes oh Uh, he he says they weren't but um they were (laughs) they were made out of steaks they were organic i think (laughs) but he was yeah uh he looked good Good. Oh, and he was, great. Yes. Great to hear. That's really good to hear. 
particularly because we desperately need to see them live next year. He yeah. he had a video on his YouTube channel at uh, the beginning of the month on Freddie's birthday, and it's about, I think it's a minute and six seconds long, including like the end screen with his website and everything. And he just was um, showing a couple of pictures of Freddie Mercury from that new book that's out yeah, with the photographs. Same, same um, thing, yeah. yeah, and uh, it made my mum and I cry within 15 seconds. Oh, so yeah, yeah, we went. We I went. Oh look, he put the video on, and within fifteen seconds, we were like gone. So oh, um, oh. that's a record. <laughs> oh, we're a right so heartless amazing. pair of women as well. So <laughs> good going. Oh well, that brings us neatly on to the fan letter that we've got to read you today, uh, which is from Jay Coombs, who I'm pretty sure is in the US, and he's such an articulate chap and says some really lovely things about us. So I want to thank you for that, Jay. Uh, I'm not going to read all of the gush bits because that would be disingenuous but um, they weren't gushy they were just really nice things but um, I'm going to um, I'm just going to read you this letter that I uh, yeah really got to me actually so dear queen podheads which I love uh, (laughs) I've listened to the zero and first episodes and feel very much in tune with the participants all of whom I get this sense are somewhere along the journey of queen fandom between obsession and lifestyle that's where I find myself nearly 30 years on with only one room of the house set aside to showcase my hoard of band memorabilia. Mm. <laughs> I love that you need a whole house and just one room to compromise. Suffice it to say that there's an authenticity to your endeavour that clearly tells me we're the same tribe. That I love. We are the same tribe. And I say that as a man with a physical copy of every Queen fan club magazine from 1976 to the present day. <gasps> wow. Ooh. Ooh, impressive. Honestly... John is literally clutching his eyes because it, that's... <laughs> well, I think the thing with that is they're clearly collected over that time. One could probably go on eBay and solve that um, hole in the bookshelf in one fell swoop. But I love the idea that that's sort of a quarterly um, update that he's been having for over 40 years, for mm. nearly 50 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not easy to collect something for that long. It really isn't. Like you move. No, it's not. Honestly, yeah. So I think that's amazing. Anyway, he gets into the little story that he tells us, and this I love. So, for the first 18 years of my life, I was largely unaware of Queen, growing up as I did in a very rural part of the United States in the 80s, which tells you something of how the band's fortune had changed in that decade. And he mentions a few tracks like We Will Rock You, Another One Bites the Dust, that were vaguely on his radar. However, he says, very he didn't really know much about Queen, so very late on a Saturday night in early September 1991, the summer before I started my first first year in university I came home from a date and turned on the television I found and settled on an hour-long promotional program hosted by the imperiously credited W Axel Rose called Queen the Days of Our Lives essentially an edited down version of the Magic Years documentary and bits of the innuendo EPK I was largely clueless as, as to what I was going to see but I figured good enough for Axel good enough for me Life changed over the course of the hour. I was completely charmed, not only by the songs, but also by the images, the style, the personalities, and the good humour of these amazing musicians who could still have a laugh at it all. As the programme was part of Hollywood Records' push of the remastered Queen catalogue on compact disc in North America, I went out the next afternoon and bought Innuendo and never looked back. It's still my favourite album. Flash ahead several weeks, and I was DJing at the dreadful easy listening format radio station that my very small liberal arts college maintains in the unwanted Sunday evening slot. 
Part of my duties included pulling new stories off the old-fashioned associated press wire uh, in the station office and putting together two minutes of news, weather and sports at the top and bottom of each hour. I put on a record of sonic wallpaper and checked the wire. One headline leapt out and punched me in the gut. Dateline, November 24, 1991. London, Queen singer Freddie Mercury, dead of AIDS. So after dashing to my car and grabbing my copy of Innuendo, I announced to my tiny little slice of the listening world that the greatest singer of the modern era had passed into history, followed by These Are The Days Of Our Lives, which I'm sure no one tuned in had ever heard. I didn't care, and format be damned. It was the best respect I could pay at the time. In the intervening 29 years, Queen have informed and enriched my life. They were my musical education, they have soothed me in times of grief, encouraged me in times of hardship, and celebrated with me in the small triumphs of my life. They're my band, and I could not be more proud to have been associated with them for nearly three decades. They're the best and truly champions, but they share the crown, and certainly have with all of us. My best to you all, Jay Coombs. Aww. And I genuinely can't Great read story. that without wellowing up. Wellowing up. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah that's, um... I take back everything I said about him not having just bought all of those fan club magazines on eBay. <laughs> 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 that's a wonderful, wonderful letter, and I love that the way the phrase where he says they sh- they share their crown with yeah. all their fans. I think that's very, mm. very um, apt for yeah, Queen. They've always been mm. about us, haven't they? It's. Uh... Mm-hmm. They're a generous group that way. And just that small act of, you know, I, I was mindful of when you were telling us about uh, getting Bohemian Rhapsody at the top of the uh, XFM playlist, was it? Uh, yeah. You know, and he was doing that in his little corner of the world on this yeah. little easy listening station. And that was his sort of little tribute. But there we go. What a beautiful story. So thank you so much, Jay, for writing to us. And um, we'd love to hear stories like that from you guys, genuinely. Um, do drop us an email is the best way to do these ones, which is uh, queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com. So let's do now the fan question, which will come from producer Charles, because I don't know what it is. Right, yeah. Uh, The question this week is, if you had to paint a garage door with a Queen album... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, this comes from Andy McH. Uh, There's a little bit of an introductory thing from him just based on stuff that you guys were talking about already recently. He says, I hope that you'll spend some time discussing Roger's rockers. I love that Roger is allowed to sing one of his songs on most albums, even though they don't remotely suit the feel of the album as a whole. (laughs) There are virtually virtually no exceptions to this rule. They stick out like sore thumbs, and I'm sure Roger will understand that. As being a drummer, I'm sure he's suffered from a few sore thumbs in his time. Very good. Roger isn't interested in fairies or dragons or prophets. He loves girls and cars and hates school. (laughs) I love this guy. I never saw... saw Queen live but I did manage to see the cross in Guildford in 1988 and Roger still hated school then he was 38 (laughs) despite what I've said I really am a big fan of Roger's songs and when you listen to them as a whole they make one killer album uh, and actually, Andy McH has made a, a playlist for us. I'll, I'll, I'll tweet that out oh, um, as, a, as a compilation. The question this week is, therefore, if you compiled best ofs, Queen best ofs, based on specific band members' compositions, whose would be your favourite? Which would be the most diverse lists or the most fun lists? Well, I'm so I'm guessing we take Freddie out of this equation, do we? Because he's the answer to the most diverse, yeah. for sure, right? Because he was crazy eclectic and mm. also wrote the most probably yeah. or certainly between him mm. and Brian it's tight isn't it 
Yeah. Let's assume we're talking about. I guess let's let's assume we're talking about the other three. Just let me get this clear in my mind. Am I making a Roger best of, a Brian best of, and a John best of, or a best of all three? No, you're making a Roger, a Roger's rockers, uh, a Brian's belters, and a John's <laughs> jingles. Okay, jingles. and and are jingles. we? <laughs> <laughs> rockers belters and jingles that's another like band it. entirely that's fantastic <laughs> and i guess with so for example days of our lives is roger written song but because they were released as they were credited as queen are we taking them out of the equation so ones that we sort of know are brian roger or john but have were credited to queen like Invisible Man is quite Rogery, isn't it? But actually, it's mm, Queen. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's everything up to a kind of magic. Okay. Right. Okay. Great question. Great <laughs> question. Now the parameters have been set. <laughs> been set. <laughs> shall we? We should build. We, that needs quite a lot of prep time. So maybe shall we? Um, how should we do this? Is there an episode in this? Do you know what? There probably is. Oh, that's a good one. Is there a because otherwise I, I suspect the question comes down to whose songs do you like most out of mm, Brian, John, okay. and, and, and oh, Roger? God. But actually, no. Let's treat this like this. How about for our fan special at the end of the series? Oh yeah, we will good come thing. back with idea. our top ten. Yeah, yeah, top yeah, ten yeah. of each idea. of them, or maybe top five. <laughs> but for the purposes of this podcast, the answer is obviously Roger. So shall we? <laughs> <laughs> shall we? Well, I so tell you was... what is an interesting thing. Maybe is is Rogers rockers that don't sound like Rogers rockers. Mm-hmm. So he's got a couple of songs that you go, oh, that mm-hmm. was Roger. And I would uh, say a kind of magic is one of those. Yeah. And, yes. ra- and Radio Gaga. Yeah. yeah. Just very often. Oh right, the drummer right now. Oh, right. <laughs> you get a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but obviously, he does sing on a lot of his, which. Kind of gives it away. So you and when he when he's not the lead vocalist, his voice always rings out right on mm. the top. Yeah, that's true. But interestingly, the Highlander version of a kind of magic is closer, I think, to what Roger intended when he ah. wrote the song. It got turned into a pop song to make it more commercial. Gotcha. Which yeah. Freddie heavily influenced. Freddie mm-hmm. said right. on holiday, didn't he? So he could just get in the studio and read yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and Roger Roger came back and went, yeah, that sounds great. Oh, <laughs> I do love the Highlander version. The Highlander version is very heavy. It's good. Yeah, it's cool. Mm. Um, all right, so we're not answering that question. Is that the... Yet. <laughs> well, all but of we, them. We, we will, but we want to yeah. give it the respect it deserves. Yes. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. Okay, we're going to get into the works. I'm so excited. <laughs> This week, we are looking at Side A of Sheer Heart Attack, uh, which was released uh, in the UK on the 8th of November 1974. Some may say it was the first, but it is largely regarded as the 8th of uh, November. Uh, It was released on EMI in the UK, Electra in the US. It was recorded at Trident, AIR, Rockfield and Wessex Sound Studios between July and September 1974. Uh, and uh, it was produced by Queen and Roy Thomas Baker and engineered by Mike Stone. And after a couple of weeks on uh, talking about Smile uh, and uh, having a chat with Tim Staffel, um, it is lovely to be getting back to the albums. And it does 
Uh, it is probably uh, timely to say this is the last album, this last studio album that we're going to be looking at this season. And so I was looking at sort of where we've got to over the course of the pod and I realised that when we were talking about Queen there was all this discussion about various ways in which they had to compromise for studio time and depths of sound on their drums and all the rest of it Um, but what I noticed was from Queen 2 onwards they never compromised like Queen 2 was that announcement and this comes straight after that and I think this album is absolute proof of that as well and in fact um, it is an album that has I've long held it isn't currently my favorite album but there have been years and years where it has been uh, and i'd respect anyone that that said it would be simon do you want to give us a little um background on this uh, wonderful wonderful album very happy to because it's actually quite fascinating what they were going through as they were recording this album um as each of their albums are but when we were chatting about queen 2 we left our story with queen having supported mot the hoople on their uk tour and that being a great success and that was followed with an invitation for Queen to do the same on Mott's US tour. And of course, that presented the wonderful first bite at the USA. So it was too good to turn down. Um, so in early April 1974, that tour begins and the band uh, see as a result a nice increase in album sales. The shows are going down really well. So all is good. Um, one of the Mott team reflected that the extraordinary thing about Queen was that whereas money tended to dictate what sort of equipment a band would use. If the touring budget didn't stretch to a particular piece of equipment, then Brian or John would simply build one until they could afford to buy it. <laughs> I don't think there are many bands doing that at the time. So cool. Um, everything was going well, and the trajectory Queen had been on of growing in popularity and sales seemed to be continuing. However, as well as talent and hard work to be successful, you also need a bit of luck. And at this point, Queen's seemed to start running out. Uh, avid listeners will recall that earlier in the year the band had received inoculations so they could travel to Australia. Yes. But that Brian's arm got infected and, it, you know, was, um, yeah. It, yeah, he really suffered. Uh, he had recovered, but by late April he was experiencing some pain again and was a- but it was able to still play, so the tour rumbled on. However, on May the 12th, after performing in New York, he collapsed. It's thought it was food poisoning. And so he's sent to bed and told to rest before the next show, which is in Boston. But in his hotel room, aching all over and barely able to move, Brian spots himself in the bathroom mirror and notices that he's turned yellow. Mm. The diagnosis is hepatitis and Queen's involvement in the Mott tour has to be cancelled. And by essentially propping him up between them, the rest of the band managed to smuggle Brian onto a flight home (gasps) and they all return to London, uh, understandably completely devastated by having the tour cut short. Uh, Brian is confined to bed and is put on a fruit juice diet, which was the thing at the time apparently to fight hepatitis, and begins his recovery. And in July, the band head into the studio to start work on Sheer Heart Attack. Things are starting to come together, but it's clear Brian is still not right. In between takes, he is having to take a break to be sick and can often barely stand. Eventually, one of his managers, Barry Sheffield, gets him an appointment with a private doctor. And when Brian passes out on the carpet in the consulting room, the doctor said, we don't think you're very well, (laughs) Um, and sends him to hospital. This time, a duodenal ulcer is detected, which requires an emergency operation. This is a massive blow for Brian, who must stop work immediately. And a US tour that the band had planned for September has to be cancelled. 
So the rest of the band plough on without him, leaving gaps in the recordings for the guitars for when he's well enough and obviously on the harmonies as well. Brian tries to put the enforced bed rest to good use and keeps writing with Now I'm Here, one track in particular that is created on his sickbed. Now when I interviewed Brian for the Days of Our Lives documentary, he described this time away from the band as being incredibly difficult for him. He began to worry that the other three would look to replace him. Um, However, detecting this, the band rallied around him and were regular visitors to his sickbed. Um, He recalled that they bought him this video game, which must have been one of the first of its kind, which was basically a very crude version of tennis. Um, oh, I actually, know what it is. Yeah. yeah, it was sort of a little handset with just two knobs, yeah. and that's all it. Yeah, just two yeah. lines that moved up and down. Um, Magnavox Odyssey, it would be called. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Brian recalled that because he'd had um, major abdominal surgery as well, he was in a fair amount of pain, and that it really hurt when he laughed. And so the rest of the band took great pleasure in telling him jokes. The thing that struck me is he's also remembered that Freddie um, would be a regular visitor and would bring him the latest recordings uh, from the studio to sort of help Brian still feel involved. And that included the harmonies that they'd laid down for Killer Queen, but that Brian thought were really too harsh and were very abrasive. Apparently it was a lot rockier, almost sort of quite aggressive version of the song. Um, and Brian told him this. And rather than get offended, Freddie went, you're right, my dear, we'll do them again. Um, and waited until Brian rejoined them in the studio. So the original version of Killer Queen was actually going to be much rockier and harder than it turned Please out. Please tell I me see. you have it yeah. on you now, Simon, in your Sadly pocket. Not. Oh. No one has that, to the best of my knowledge. God. Um, on another occasion, Freddie turned up and proudly presented Brian with a tape he'd made saying, listen to this, darling, which had all of Brian's guitar solos edited together, <laughs> telling him he wanted to immortalise all of Brian's guitar solos in one place. Um, all of this ensured that Brian was kept part of the band, and actually, when he returned to the studio, he had what he felt was a fresh, almost outside view of the songs they'd been working on, so he was able to make a really important contribution. Fortunately, the illness didn't delay the production unduly and certainly doesn't seem to have adversely affected the end product. The only other thing that's worthy of note, I think, at this point is amusingly, having heard that Queen's US tour had been cancelled because of Brian, another group called Sparks approached him to see if he'd be interested in joining them instead. Uh, Ah. But ever the gentleman, Brian heard them out and then politely declined. Yeah, he did. So there you go. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that is an incredible thing about this album that has always spun my head a bit which is it is such a guitar based album it's such a heavy mm. guitar album and this idea that they just left space to add his <laughs> guitars in like how do you how do you even go about doing that did he have guide tracks laid down or what actually how does that work how do you make Brighton Rock without a mm. guitar player how do you I do su- that I, I don't know I suspect Brian's songs sort of would have come when he was he was better but it's well also Brighton Rock had been around for a while during the Queen 2 sessions I think certainly the solo had hadn't it yeah uh, yeah and and live so I think that's something they could have all had in their heads but even even though it is a a rocky album there are there are gaps that they don't feel like gaps on the album but there are less rocky songs yeah so it's not like it, it, I wouldn't say the guitar is like the backbone of the album, oh, but really? there are some big, there are some big Brian Belters on there. Mm. 
Yeah, because I think <laughs> normally where they would build build songs with piano, bass, and drums first, so they could have done that. And, and also, he moment. he writes a lot of his solos on piano yeah. anyway, so that they're so melodic that I'm sure Freddie could have sort of assimilated something, or or Brian could have in his mind. Yeah, I think that's my point: is that he could in his mind do that. <laughs> that is an amazing mind to have, isn't it? I've yeah. I've been to Rockfield where they recorded some of oh, this wow. album. We 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 could all go there when uh, restrictions ease for like our our yearly Queen Pod holiday because oh. you can stay in the you can stay in the um, sort of living quarters next to the studio. So I I, took, I booked a friend stag do there. Is that the one that's and, featured in the movie? Yes. Yes. Oh, and, I do um, stay there. The the toilet of my ensuite had a like an orange gold sparkly toilet seat that Roy Thomas Baker had installed. Oh. <laughs> and you can go into the clap chambers where they did um, all of the harmonies for Bohemian Rhapsody, and there's the piano there that Freddie played on Bohemian Rhapsody, and the guy who owns it will give you a give you a guided tour. How cool! So I've sat at the piano that that Freddie wrote Bohemian Rhapsody on. How cool would it be if we recorded our A Night at the Opera podcast from Rockfield? Oh, now. Well, there was a documentary about it recently on uh, iPlayer about the studio because it's also where Oasis recorded lots of songs. So Mm -hmm. it's a very famous studio. Yeah, yeah, it's a good. um, That's a good documentary for any Queen fans because Queen get a look in there. (laughs) The the guy who uh, owns it and runs it is really sweet but he does he assumes that I think Rockfield itself had more influence on the lyrics than perhaps it did <laughs> so there's a wall there's a wall outside and he goes uh, you see see that that's, uh, that's the wall, Wonder Wall <laughs> um, and there's and there's a, there's a there's a wind vane and he goes uh, look up there see that wind vane any way the wind blows, <laughs> so, and it, it may well may well be the case, but I, I'm not quite well, sure the wall was distinctive enough. That's brilliant. <laughs> was there anything particularly wondery about the wall, or was it? No, it's just quite a tall wall. <laughs> just a wall. Fair enough. Fair enough. I love what. Um, uh, Roy Thomas Baker's understanding of what Queen wanted from this album was just okay. Let's have really big singles, please. That was kind mm. of their whole attitude to this whole album, wasn't it? To, right. To kind of okay. I think you mentioned it when we were talking about Queen Two, Simon. That there was sort of a, a just a shift away from this sort of the proggier elements of what they do into just more belting. Yeah. Tracks. Strangely enough, for Simon Says later on, I'd actually found a clip of Roy Thomas Baker saying this very thing. Should we play it now, seeing as we're on that? All right, yeah. As long as it doesn't tread on your Simon Says later. No, no, no. no. All right, let's have a a mini mind blow here. Imagine what was actually going through our minds during the Queen period, obviously, with their frustrations musically and my frustrations um, production-wise. The first Queen album, as as I mentioned, was done in downtime, so it was no real chance to express ourselves on any particular big level apart from just getting the songs onto tape. The second album, which people didn't like at the time because they thought of it as being over the top, which of course it was, but that was, we designed it to be over the top. It had every conceivable production idea that was ever available for us at that time. 
machinery has now been invented to be able to make the job of us doing that second album easier. But if we hadn't done that second album, a lot of this, some of the machinery, like some of the flanges and phasers and things to do back, things back, would not have been invented. The, the idea of Queen 3 was, right, let's just get together, let's get some songs out there for once, you know, real little short songs, Killer Queen, and it was very successful on that level. Very few of the production techniques were used. They were used, but they weren't used to such great extent, you know, I mean, the track of, say, Killer Queen, if Killer Queen would have been done a year earlier and it was on Queen 2, it would have been probably phased from beginning to end, but it was just used on, on one word, uh, laser beam. That was the thing it was used on. Um, the whole idea, of, obviously, of a sheer attack was just purely for the guys to see whether they can get together and write nice, short, wonderful, down-to-earth hit songs. And they did. Yeah. There you go. Can, can I make an observation about Roy Thomas Baker? Mm-hmm. His voice sounds like a mix of every member of Queen. <laughs> yeah. He's got he's got um John's rolling of the R's. Yeah. He's got Freddie's quite sort of decadent upper class lilt. <laughs> he's every so often a little bit of sort of Roger's slight London y twang. Yeah. And then he's got sort of that that uh, quite thoughtful Brian bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 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 it's true. Do you think it's he just true. used to do the harmonies on his own then when they weren't there? <laughs> <laughs> his voice is actually a four four track <laughs> dub of the entire band. I mean, he he says that about Sheer Heart Attack, and I've no doubt it's true. But it still starts with a five minute guitar solo. <laughs> it's it's not that kind of. I imagine what the record label would want is like four hits and a load of sort of inconsequential filler that they don't really care about. But it isn't that. It still feels like a piece. Um, And I was reading an interview with uh, Patrick Myers about the album. He made a really good point that Queen were always a theatrical band, but on Sheer Heart Attack, uh, the phrase he used was they're now taking a directorial eye. And I thought that was a really good mm. way of expressing how they'd reined in that over-the-top sound, mm. and it now feels a bit more like machine-tooled. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. they have more precision, more control. And it, it, it does feel a bit like a theatrical show that someone is now in charge of, because right. you have those moves from heavy rock to sort of almost like music hall, which you then see to a great extent in Night of the Opera, mm. And then there's a ballad, and then there's back into hard rock, and then there's a sort of a solo voice. So it it, it feels like a curated um, collection of songs as opposed to just you know four hits and et al. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've been talking about it for a while. Shall we talk about uh, Brian May's wonderful five-minute and eight-second-long Brighton Rock song? Yes. It is pretty and amazing. It's an amazing opening to uh, this album. Uh, And I've got some working titles for for what the song was, (laughs) if you're interested to hear them. Yeah. Do you know these? I'm I'm, I'm guessing we're going to have to have a Freddie Ayo. (laughs) Straight away. Straight away. So there's some others you might not know, but obviously... uh, I didn't know any of these actually until I looked into it, but here we go. Happy little. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, we're safe. Happy little day. Blackpool Rock. Bogner Ballad. <laughs> South End Sea Scout. Skiffle Rock. And Hearn Bay. 
And <laughs> I've also heard that Brighton was a, a working Oh, Brighton. Team. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so loads and loads of AOs there, which is fantastic. And you just sort of think, well, hang on, there's the whole novel. There's That's the thing, Brighton Rock. So you, you mm. never questioned it, but uh, the idea that it took them a while to get there is amazing. And it's uh, a song that tells the story of two young lovers named Jenny and Jimmy meeting in Brighton on a public holiday. Um, and it begins with a whistled refrain from uh, I Do Like to Be Beside the Seaside, continuing on from the end of Seven Seas of Rye at the end mm. of Queen 2, if you remember that. Which um, I'd never registered until we came to do this episode. Right. I I'd never, <laughs> I just never picked up on it. And then I, someone sent it to us on Twitter. They went, oh, that, that happens. And I went, what? And I played it and I went... <laughs> It's there, it's, it's clear there. as it's day, but I've just never noticed it because I'm always waiting for the guitar to come in, I guess. Of course, of course. Do you mean to say you've never listened to all Queen's albums back to back in chronological order? Oh, I haven't. I, what I a have. bad fan. <laughs> I, I, did, I did it for Mark Watson's 24-hour show. That's such a good idea. Because I worked out that it's pretty much 24 yeah. hours. So I, I just had them on my iPod all day. What, you just... I'll be honest with you, I still didn't notice that. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're waiting just... for the guitar to kick in. Yeah. We just sat on stage somewhere just to listen to it all on headphones. For the final two hours I was. <laughs> awesome. That is absolutely awesome. I love that. Um, all right, good. Um, so uh, the song was written during the Queen 2 sessions but wasn't recorded at that point and it features Brian's technique of using multiple echoes to build up guitar harmonies. Actually, John, you'll probably be able to tell me more about this than, uh, than what I've got uh, from my research. But the, the studio version features only one main guitar and one echoed guitar. And when performed live, Brian would usually split his guitar signal into one main and two echoed, each going into a separate bank of amplifiers. And the idea of this multi-track guitar actually dates all the way back to the small track blag. Does that make sense to you? Have you got anything further to comment on well, that? Well, sort of, Brian, I, I'm I'm reluctant to to describe too much of Brian's history with delay, in, unless we get lots of uh, emails correcting me, because I'm sure it would I would mangle my memories of it. But I'm pretty sure that he started out by trying to create his own and then as the technology improved used more and more but I, there's always two echoes so on the ping pong delay mm -hmm. for people who don't know it's basically you play a note and then that note echoes back to you and you can set the delay at different um amounts of milliseconds or seconds so um for example on the prophet song mm -hmm. it goes Oh, people, can you hear me? People, can you hear me? People, can you hear me? Yeah. So that's that's like the 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 one voice and the two echoes yeah. on the on the album. It's just one echo, but then when he would play it live, he would sort of um, the live version of Brian's solo or Brighton Rock. Mm. You'll you'll hear the the two echoes, and he's actually playing off. Um, both of the repeats what's tricky is if you make a mistake you have to hear it two more times ah, so of course. The, the, the stress of playing a 10 minute solo i can't imagine yeah. because you know if you hit God. a bum note it's then going to ring out twice <laughs> yeah. more never stakes are high that. that's amazing yeah, yeah. and of course because on a, if you if you get a, a note wrong in a solo you can tend 
to hide it by either like bending into the right note. Yeah. And people don't notice it because their brains sort of make up the difference. Mm. But if you then have to have that twice again. Yeah. That's absolutely elevated his solos for me because, of course, he set himself a really difficult challenge. So it's a display of precision as much as anything else. That's phenomenal. Um, okay, yeah, and of course he played this at uh, the closing ceremony, a little bit of it uh, at the closing ceremony of the 2012 Olympics. But listen, let's learn, listen, let's listen to some, shall we? Um, I'm just going to start with the uh, that opening fairground song sort of sound that came off the back of um, Queen Two and got into this. <laughs> take a little pause there and just think about what we've just heard come on (laughs) this is maybe your favorite bit on the album isn't it i love this because the lyrics of this are so musical it would be perfect musical even with this melody and they've you know um Happy pair they made, so decorously laid neath the gay illuminations all along the promenade. It's, you can hear it. Um, I don't need to change anything except for the arrangement. Uh, but they've written this epic, cool rock track that I think a lot of people, the sort of people who go, they dismiss Queen because it's not cool, I guess. It, oh, it's not proper rock. Yeah. They haven't heard Brighton Rock. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's that. That opening section you played for me, out of all of Queen's catalogue, is the most enjoyment I get out of hearing any section. Yeah, mm. I just think that's the best. Mm-hmm. I, I I actually think that's the best moment on any Queen it's album. Just the best of all of Queen ever done. Well, the <laughs> transition from the fairground sounds into the chords, and then just all well, of it. Well, it's it's the bit. It's the you, I'm going to ask you to explain it, and it's, we're going to turn find out it's just them going into halftime like we did with <laughs> Fairy Feller's Masterstroke. But it's always those more two that. moments, that bit in Fairy Feller's Masterstroke, mm. and the bit where they go, oh, rock mm. of age, mm-hmm. and the drum is that for me. I remember when I was 12, I was having guitar lessons at my school, and I was having Spanish guitar lessons, and the guy teaching them was just an absolute bore. And I was learning like peas pudding hot right. on, a, on a Spanish guitar, classical guitar, and just hating it. And I was about to quit. And in my in my kitchen, I remember putting this on 
to remind myself why I wanted to learn the guitar. And I listened to Brighton Rock. And I went into school and found out there was an electric guitar teacher. Oh, hello. So I switched from this boring classical guitar to the electric guitar teacher who was cool and smoked fags in his car. <laughs> and then when I left, when I left school, I continued to have lessons in his house and we'd, we'd sort of sit in his living room and he'd smoke roll-ups and we'd copy Queen and Captain Beefheart guitar solos and stuff. <laughs> so this song is so important to me and I think Queen de la Queen today is going to be an absolute bum it's fight. It's going to be all out war. Literally every single song on this side of the album should be in the Queen de la Queen, so we're going to have to find out what's going on. Uh, but oh, yeah, yes. It's also that, that, that fairground... It, it, that thing about them having a more directorial eye, mm. it feels like you're walking into a, a fairground. Mm. You've arrived mm. at this kind of place where there are different attractions and different rides and different stalls and different characters and genres. And that's, I think, what the album then goes on to showcase. It is like walking around a fairground. And, and Sue's absolutely right about that sort of music hall vibe. And in, in in that sense, I think it's a bit of a pre. It is real a precursor to a night of the opera where they fully mm. realised that that sort of vision. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. mm. Am I right? I such, yeah, sorry, go on, go on, go on, no, no, you go on, Simon. I have such strong memories of this because, uh, as you know, I sort of my entry point into into Queen was uh, in 1986. So it's like for Magic, the kind of Magic album. But when they brought out the uh, the live at Wembley show from that tour. Um, the director for that, a lovely chap called Gavin Taylor, um, they had a time lapse footage of the stage being built at Wembley Stadium, and he edited that together to the guitar solo that we're about to hear from Brighton Rock. So I heard that first before I heard the rest of the song, and I fell in love with the guitar solo, and I was like, I have to find out where this comes from so managed to find out that it was called Brighton Rock so then of course got Shihata and then when you listen these aren't the lyrics that you're expecting if no. you've just heard no. the guitar <laughs> solo but that's what's so great about it is it's completely not what you're expecting even if you hear it about face as it were and I, I love that in that clip Freddie's doing voices he's doing the yeah. girl's voice yes. and yeah, he's yeah. doing the man's voice yeah so musical. And so he sort of goes down into that slightly boomy. Mm. I'm do. I'm a man now. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I'm a girl. But it, it does feel like a kind of Punch and Judy. Yes, show it does. That's yes. right. That's exactly what it is. Of course. Yeah. That's amazing. What a brilliant observation. Uh, and also, uh, I mean, yeah, I love the uh, out of the whole of the whole song. It's actually the opening that is my favourite sequence. And I actually agree mm-hmm. with you, John, when you say it's maybe well, yeah, maybe the very best bit of Queen there is. Um, hmm. Uh, and I'm uh, very mindful that you guys familiar with uh, Edgar Wright's movie Baby Driver. Yes. And he Great set use. a whole, well, it was actually, it ends up sort of being a foot chase, but an entire chase sequence specifically to this song. And the whole film is built like that. So he's shot all these sequences set to pieces of music. Mm. Uh, but it was it was his desire to do that with Brighton Rock that kind of gave him the idea for the whole film. And uh, it is really worth checking out because, again, as soon as that starts kicking in, and obviously people that aren't that familiar or aren't familiar enough with Queen to know that it's a Queen song, that it's a baby, you know, that 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 um, 
that there's this track and I remember when it came out people going oh my god what is this because as soon as you hear Freddie everyone knows okay yeah this must be Queen um, but yeah it is it is so cool it's such a cool track let's listen to some more um, I'm actually going to move into sort of the fast solo section if, if, if that's alright with you guys can I just ask Simon a question that maybe he might have to research probably um, were Queen in the lifetime of the the band as a four piece with Freddie were they what was their relationship with soundtracks because they did one vision was on Iron Eagle Highlander soundtrack and the uh, Flash soundtrack obviously they wrote but did they get lots of requests for songs and if so did they turn them down John wrote on Biggles yes yeah they got lots of requests um, my understanding is that on the whole they would turn down any requests because they sort of there was this feeling that while they were still proactive and sort of making new stuff it was it was sort of detrimental to have have it sort of out there too much it's almost it sort of devalues Mm. it the more it crops up um i think once after freddie had, had sort of passed away um it sort of became it's a way of keeping your music alive and keeping it going so the requests would be much more sort of openly received. And I yeah, but when they did get contacted, as you say, they they'd sort of say, Well, yeah, all right, but we'll write you new stuff for your, yeah, your yeah, movie. Yeah. Um but interestingly the other thing that they get a lot of requests is for songs to be used on compilation albums, you know, things like now albums and so forth. And if you notice, it's like, yeah, you can have a queen track, but it's the first song on the first side. Ah, ah. nice. There you go. Hells yeah. That's how to wield power. I see. I love it. I love it. <laughs> also, confusingly, there is a film composer also called Brian May, who's. I think he <laughs> might. You might have to look this up, Giles. My memory is um, that he did the wonderful music on the Crocodile Dundee and Crocodile Dundee two movies. He he started out Brian May. I, I know about Brian May. In oh. fact, Simon and I were talking about him on a Friday. We were. Um, he he started out doing all the Ozploitation movies. The reason he hit the big time was because he happened to do the soundtrack for Mad Max, the original. Ah. I see. Um, and oh, so, so he did like Razorback and all that kind of stuff. The director of Mad Max, Miller. Yeah. George John Miller. Miller. George, George Miller. Miller asked Mad asked, Mad, asked Brian May Mad to Max do... Miller would be quite a good film. <laughs> <laughs> a, a music a musical comedian in a time when petrol's run out. That is Brighton Rock. I think that's Mad Max Miller. <laughs> But yeah, he uh, he did he did all of Miller's films right up to Fury Road as well, which is quite weird seeing Fury Road at the cinema and seeing Brian May as the writer of the music. Oh, yeah, no PhDs. Uh, <laughs> all right, okay, listen, listen, let's listen to a little bit more. Who starts the side of an album with a massive guitar solo like that? Yeah, mm. yeah. Brilliant. But it's so fast. There's so much urgency, and there's a, there's a 
Declan, and let's not forget, a lot of this he may have been laying down separately to the rest of them and all of mm. that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, there's so much intent and urgency to this track that I absolutely love it. Uh, was that the actual bit of solo that you were talking about earlier, or have I skipped past the bit that you? No, that was absolutely. exactly it. That was and, it. And yeah. Just just at that moment where it it sort of stops and sort of goes into an echo, that's when the opening track the recorded bit of One Vision starts before ah. the band come in. It segues beautifully into that, mm-hmm. you know, bit from um, One Vision. Oh, so and then good. you're off. Yeah. It's so good. And uh, 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 I, I, I want to sort of just play the ending of the track as well, because uh, the point here is, yeah, they are opening a track with this enormous sound, this huge section of guitars, three three minutes of... Of, of sustained guitars that you know we've talked a lot about how you know brian was always very economical and did a lot with short spaces of time was never indulgent and i don't think this solo is indulgent i think he just keeps it so fascinating so interesting keep moving and yet when you get to the end of the song they they just bring in this enormous sort of sense of humor and make the whole thing just a ridiculous amount of playing about which i absolutely adore so i'm going to take us there as well Such a such a good song. Yeah, it's, it's great. It is absolutely great. There's so many amazing riffs in it, and there's this lovely feeling when the rest of the band come in, and, and John comes in with that bass, like do 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 do, and then and you know, and the, the rest they're coming back now. Everyone's back together and making this yeah. amazing sound. And then Fred is an absolute outrage at the end. <laughs> that crazy giggling, squeaky. What is he up to? absolutely hilarious and wonderful my favorite bit is his read um is he goes oh no i'm compromised i must apologize (laughs) (laughs) as if he ever would (laughs) oh wow yeah amazing absolutely brilliant track i've just got one thing to say this goes back to the first uh i suppose the chorus isn't it um the where he goes, I weave my spell. He'll always really accent that double L so much. And I only hear it um, as good as that from Barbara Streisand. Wow. <laughs> Fred That's and company. Babs, they both are a big fan of her. L. <laughs> and as someone who is frequently hears herself back and hears my double L's as a big W sound, <laughs> my horrible accent. I'd be going well, uh, so I should learn from the best, and that is Freddie. Oh my God, Brilliant. I'm sure Fred would love being compared to Barbara Streisand. <laughs> that would be absolutely fantastic. I don't think it's the first time I've done it on this podcast either, so I must apologise. <laughs> <laughs> I like all the bits that make you sing, Suze, it's great. Uh, well, we're moving on now to 
Well, their first major hit single, which is huge, right? I mean, Killer Queen... Mm. Killer Queen was written by Freddie Mercury. It's two minutes, 59 seconds long, just literally just under three minutes, and it's wonderful, isn't it? He said he wrote the song in a single night, uh, and uh, also that this track is one of the few songs for which he wrote the lyrics before he wrote the melody. Uh, And according to Freddie, they're about a high-class cool girl, uh, and he said, I'm trying to say that classy people can be whores as well. That's what the song is about. Though I'd prefer people put their interpretation on it to read into what they like, um, which is what he said to the NME on the 2nd of November 1974. Uh, and of course, you mentioned some guy, the monster, monster guy who keeps thinking that. Oh, Queen yeah, that, that guy. Eric Hoare. Yeah. 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 All right, well, claims it's clearly Eric, Eric, Eric Hoare is what this, uh, according to Fred, is, <laughs> is, is, if it is about him. Uh, it was released as a double A side with Flick of the Wrist, which I didn't know actually until I, I looked at this. I, I, maybe I knew it as a kid. It was released uh, on October the 11th, 1974, and it reached number two in the UK in the week beginning the 10th of November 1974. Uh, so it beat out. Would you like to hear what was in the top 10 that, that, yeah. that week? Yeah. Uh, so uh, number 10, Pepper Box the Peppers. Nine, Let's Put It All Together by the Stylistics. Eight, Down on the Beach Tonight, The Drifters. Seven, All of Me Loves All of You by the Bay City Rollers. Six, Far, Far Away by Slade. That is a song I do actually know. Uh, Now, number five, You're the First, the Last, My Everything by Barry White. Fair play. Hey There, Lonely Girl, Eddie Holman. Nope. Everything I Own, Ken Booth. No, that was at number three. Number two, Killer Queen by Queen. And at number one, Gonna Make You a Star by David Essex. Ah, that song's That's what held off. (laughs) Killer Queen, which is a song the whole planet knows. Gonna make you a star. Oh, that's funny. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. It also reached number 12 in the USA, and it would later be featured as the B-side to Who Wants to be Live Forever in 86. However, it did occur to me, um, it might be worth just saying what was in the top five album charts the week beginning 24th of November 1974, because Queen's Queen Sheer Heart Attack also got to number two. So Queen Two mm. got to number five. Sheer Heart Attack got to number two. Uh, and this is more interesting, I think. At number five is David Essex uh, <laughs> with an album called David Essex. Uh, number four is Rollin' by the Bay City Rollers. Fair play. Three is Country Life by Roxy Music. Fair play. At number two, Sheer Heart Attack by Queen. So they've done well. I think they've beaten some big, big old bands out there. And they were held off from the number one spot by Elton John's Greatest Hits. Oh. Now, how do you compete oh. with Elton John's Greatest Hits, let alone the fact that he gets to do a Greatest Hits album in 1974? <laughs> how many Greatest yeah. Hits albums has Elton John had, I guess? But, um, <laughs> wow. uh, but yeah, I thought, I, I, you know, chart-wise, you can really see them shaking a tail feather now, right? They're making a, a mm. massive impact. They're, so. they're on an ascendancy at this point, aren't they? I think yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. It's funny to say that because the first time that Freddie met Elton John, uh, Elton said that he loved Killer Queen, which Freddie was really tickled by and said, as, as, re- as a result, um, Elton's name went into Freddie's little white book of people that he liked. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but he admitted he also had a little black book of people he didn't like, he said, which is bursting at the seams. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love him. Uh, fantastic. So uh, they did perform this track on Top of the Pops in October and November 1974. And in 75, Freddie received an Ivor Novello Award from the British Academy of Songwriters, Composers and Authors. So That's actually an urban myth. Is it? That's not true. What? My research is bullshit. No, no, it's interesting <laughs> you say that because 
if you if you research it, a lot of if you go, for example, on Wikipedia, it claims that Freddie won an Ivan Novello for Killer Queen, but it's actually not true. The best song that year was actually Kung Fu Fighting. Oh, that's um, right. And the okay. best song musically and lyrically was Streets of London. If you look at the Ivan Novello website. So did he not win an Ivan Novello not- that year? For Killer Queen, he actually won it in 1975, but for Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, of course. That makes okay. Sense. Yeah. Right. I'm firing hmm. Wikipedia. Oh, that'll teach me for not checking. No, it's interesting. It, how has that urban myth spread? I don't know. Someone claimed because Freddie was nominated, and I think he even came mm-hmm. second, which is obviously in keeping with Killer Queen and yes. Half that coming second. Um, but it, someone somewhere along the line said, "Oh no, he won it," and it's been picked up by quite a few reputable publications and websites and so forth that just cite that as true but actually um it's not it's on queenpedia i know <gasps> but if you go to our our go-to site songs info you know that um where they, one oh, where yeah, they break yeah, down yeah. every single chord yes um he is at great lengths to point out that this is not true and when wow. so i so i went to the ivan novella website and looked up who won in 1974 and 75 and um, sadly, there's no mention of Killer Queen at all. Okay, well, that's good. Cause... Yeah. Incredible. It is, isn't it? I think but I think we should perpetuate... It's such a rubbish urban myth. Yeah, but let's perpetuate it, because I think... <laughs> what I've, got, I've, I've got, I've got <laughs> a few uh, things I'd like to edit about the listings for the uh, 2017 Edinburgh Comedy Award. <laughs> uh, if it's possible to make some calls and just get some Wikipedia pages updated, that'd be awesome. It would. <laughs> it would. But that, you won that, yeah? That's fair play. Yeah, with with, yeah. with an asterisk. With an asterisk, with an asterisk. probably be on my grave. You won the jet. <laughs> winners are winners, old bean. Well, okay. bef- before we... Well, when we get to the... There's uh, something I'd like to play when we get to the guitar solo. Yes, sir. Because it's a song everyone knows, so essentially I'm just going to play a fat bit of the middle of it. Mm. Basically, If that includes minutes. the guitar solo, yeah, that, would be, that would be yeah. great. Okay, Thank cool. you. All right, let's do that. Fantastic. There's Is another that... cat noise. Yes. From the guitar. 
just before it, isn't it? I hadn't I picked up on that before. Yeah, it goes wow. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and he yeah, says yeah, playful yeah, as a yeah, pussycat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh gosh, only Freddie could hmm. write a track like that, right? That is a, <laughs> that is a song that just can't age. Like, yeah, it's, it's never. And I tried to put myself to... in the position of someone hearing who hadn't maybe come across Queen before, and it, that's their first experience of them on top of the pops or whatever. Mm. And they hear that in 1974. Mm. I would have loved it. Mm. Mm. I would have loved it. So, John, you've got something... Well, the first thing before I get to what I wanted to play you is there's there's an interview with uh, Derek Shulman, who was in a band called Gentle Giant. And he summed up what I think makes Killer Queen so good. He said... Queen were very good at making complicated things sound simple mm. and simple things sound complicated. Hmm. And as familiar as Killer Queen is, I just think every time you listen to it, something else pops out in a way that's so unusual for a three-minute pop song. Mm. It, it, is, it, is, it is a perfect song. And I would put it sort of up with, you know, God only knows... Sure. Mm. Th- those those absolutely you know perfect day Lou Reed those perfect songs with or without you by you two you know <laughs> and, and there are other categories as well <laughs> um, but what makes Brian's soloing unlike any other guitarist is that he has I think sixteen bars there and it's a, it's a little song in mm. itself and I've been I was. I came across an interview with Brian this morning and he's talking about a, a guitarist called Rory Gallagher, who I didn't really, I'd heard the name, but I didn't really know any of his work. I also didn't realise how big a part Rory Gallagher played in Brian's sound. Because when Brian was a kid, he went to, or a teenager, he went to see Rory Gallagher and asked him, how do you make your guitar sound like that? And he said it's a Vox AC30 and it's a, a Rangemaster treble booster and that's it and the, and the Stratocaster I use. And they, as Queen uh, became uh, sort of bigger and toured more, they would bump into each other a lot and he became sort of friendly with Rory Gallagher but always took time to set, to sort of name check him in interviews because he sadly died uh, quite young in 1995. So I was, look, I was listening to Rory Gallagher this morning and I've just got a clip because I was expecting to hear something quite similar to Brian but it's not but I think it's useful to sort of show how unique Brian is amongst rock guitarists more by what he's not than what he is so this is a song that Brian says he actually learnt which he doesn't do that often he actually sat down and took the time to learn and I'm just going to play a clip of the guitar solo from this Rory Gallagher song. So it's from his band Taste. Uh, The song's called What's Going On. So I'm just going to play it now. So that's that's this solo that uh, had a big influence on Brian. But what struck me 
was that you would never, ever, ever hear Brian May playing a solo like that. No. I was thinking the exact and, same thing, yeah. And that's, that, that type of solo is so common amongst so many 70s bands, and it's fantastic. And mm. I'm going to get into a lot of Rory Gallagher as a result of, mm. of listening to a bit of him this morning. But that, that, you know, that could have been a Leonard Skinner solo, that could have been a solo from a number of different 70s bands, though I'm sure you know, anyone who's a huge Rory Gallagher fan or a Leonard Skinner fan will, would crucify me for <laughs> saying that. Yeah. But Brian never, ever, not once in Queen, does he play a traditional rock guitar mm. solo, which is the lyrics stop, the drum carries on, the, the sort of bass guitars in the background, and then you sort of noodle away. And you sort of play those diddle 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 diddle. It just doesn't it doesn't occur to him. So, and I think the Killer Queen solo is a perfect example of of how different he is from other other guitarists. Because if you were in most bands and said, right, and now we've got sixteen bars of guitar solo, how many other people would actually use that solo to pick up the melody of the song, but also to create your own sort of counter melody? Yeah, and I I just it, it's easy to think that Killer Queen is sort of over familiar, but it is so tight and yeah. it's so neat, yeah. and it, it's 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 another great example of why none of the members of the band ever sort of were too too big in the mix. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think for each of them, these moments that they're given are an opportunity, <clears throat> an opportunity to enhance the song, and Brian is very much at the forefront of that with his. So his solos are always so melodic that you, you can sing along with them, and he really he really takes those opportunities to lift the songs any which way he can. Mm. I think they all do that. I was hanging out recently with probably my oldest friend. I've known Paul Ditch twenty five years, and I said uh, we're getting on to sheer heart attack soon, and he said, "Oh, Killer Queen's my favourite Queen song, and he's my original Queen pal." Mm. Uh, so this is his actual favourite song, and we went we got into it about Killer Queen. And um, I suddenly realised, oh, that's why, like, I always say, want to try? It's like part of my vernacular. I went, oh, it's from Killer Queen. I should know that. But it's weird. These things, like, seep into your brain. Um, Mm. And, yeah, we talked about how, like, this is the perfect example of something that's been percolating for the two albums previously. Of Freddie, he loves to write about grubby decadence. And I think (laughs) you hear it in Great King Rat, and I think you hear it, a lot in March of the Black Queen and you hear it perfectly here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always, you know, show must go on and stuff. I think mm. has that as well. I think that's fantastic. In fact, Brian, um, I've got uh, Brian on the first time he heard uh, Freddie play Killer Queen, he said, the first time I heard Freddie playing that song, I was lying in my room in Rockfield uh, feeling very sick. After Queen's first American tour, I had hepatitis and then I had very bad stomach problems I had to be operated on. So I remember just lying there hearing Freddie play this really great song and feeling sad because I thought, I can't even get out to bed to participate in this. Maybe the group will have to go on without me. No one could figure out what was wrong with me, but then I did go into the hospital and I got fixed up, thank God. And when I came out again, we were able to finish off Killer Queen. They had left some space for me and I did the solo. I had strong feelings about one of the harmony bits of the chorus, so we had another go at that too, which sort of sums up exactly what you and and John have been saying, um, which I think is fantastic. In contrast, one night after a band dinner, Roy Thomas Baker demanded Freddie return to the studio to work on the song, but he refused, proclaiming he wasn't leaving his chair, so the road crew lifted him up and carried him (laughs) into play on the piano. (laughs) (laughs) 
Isn't that wonderful? But yes, I think that's absolutely right, you know, and I think there is an urgency to the guitars on this album because, of course, Brian was like, oh, you know, he, he'd been through so much, I guess. I think you can't mm. hear it on mm-hmm. this album. It's so fresh and so fun. He's playing um, out of his boots, yeah. But mm. yes, Killer Queen is just a, a perfect song. It is a, yeah. a perfect... It's, 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 you know, if a poem is like the most intense amount of language put in a certain framework to make mm. a form of expression, I would say this is the musical of, equivalent of a poem. There you go. Yeah. And it, one of my favourite moments in Queen, it's, fa- it's quite a famous moment, but it's the response to uh, perfume came naturally from Paris. And it's naturally. just naturally. naturally. <laughs> it's, it's really perfect. It's like it's Sondheim level theatrical writing. And here it is in a pop song that everyone knows. And probably everyone knows that bit, yeah. even if you're not a major Queen fan, you yeah. know, yeah. naturally. Well, there's so much wit, isn't there? There's so many mm. layers of irony going on. and It's got a real sense of humour, this whole album. It does. It really you hear does. at the end of um, Leroy Brown as well. Just the, the oh, yeah. just the ending of the song. We'll get to that, obviously, in the next yeah, episode. Yeah. Well, the ending of the song, musical, you can't help but have a little chuckle. It's amazing. Leroy Brown. My God, mm. just absolutely outrageous. Anyway, we'll get onto that in the next podcast, um, which is fantastic. Simon, you haven't really said much about uh, Killer Queen other than I love Killer Queen, which is my impression yeah. of Simon. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, no, it's not. It's, it's all right. Um, <laughs> it's a uh, funny thing that strikes me is um, when I used to play percussion, so I, I joined a few orchestras in, in my youth. And the thing that used to drive me mad more than anything was if there weren't enough percussionists to cover all the instruments, the conductor would just say, oh, does anyone else just want to go and join in at the back? And it would always make us go, no, it's not just that easy. You don't just pick it up and hit it. You know, there's a skill to it. And I only hope that Roger felt that when when they did it live and they just said to John, oh, you can hit the triangle here. Roger's like, no, no, it's really difficult. It's all in the timing. It's all That's in the time, yeah, and believe me, you can get that wrong, and everybody hears it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, I feel like we've done Killer Queen a tremendous amount of justice there, um, and it is time for the feature of the show that we like to say, Simon Says, which is... Given that that's what I'm supposed to do, I think we have to stay on the Killer Queen theme here, don't we? And um, one of the very first jobs I did with Queen was work on the Greatest Video Hits 1 DVD um, and for that we thought it would be an excellent idea to record a um, commentary throughout all the videos which involved getting Brian and Roger together to sit and watch the videos and then share their memories of, of making them which we thought would uh, be a good idea uh, certainly at the time we thought that Mm-hmm. Um, were they and, the ones that were included on was it Greatest Hits 3 or Absolute Greatest Hits or something No, it's it a, oh the was... bits of it might have been yes okay. but um, yeah so if you, you if you had the DVD <laughs> then you've got Brian Roger Crazy. talking throughout all the videos wait when and did you start working with Queen exactly I'm sorry I will let you get to the end of your point so that would have been about 2002 so 2001 2002 oh a while was the first time I worked with them <laughs> wicked Okay, but we cool. did this. This was the first DVD that we made. And um, perhaps in my naivety, I thought I would, we'll show them Killer Queen, Top of the Pops, and we'll get loads of lovely stories about how, as a young band, it's amazing to be on Top of the Pops because it just must be the absolute 
one of the absolute pinnacles for a new band. Um, and this was sort of they'd been on with Seven Seas of Rye, but then this was their second second visit. Um, so I just went back to listen to the audio commentary for Killer Queen. And um, can I share, share yeah, a bit please. of Brian Rogers? Amazing. <laughs> reminiscing about that amazing moment when they um, finally got to go on uh, on Top of the Pops. I, I, I used to hate Top of the Pops. One, it was a crap show. Uh, <laughs> with lots of crap acts on it, rhyming um, badly. <laughs> And uh, two, it was a really long, boring day. And it used to take all of your, your iron will not to get completely pissed. <laughs> I mean, that was, how, that was how I looked on it. It was the most boring day out. You had to run through it about three times and, you know, then wait while, you know. And the result would always be And the be result would always be crap. Yeah, yeah. It was very frustrating. The guitar solo would come up and they, they'd go straight onto the bass guitar. And, uh, it's probably time to tell the truth about Bohemian Rhapsody because, yes, we were on tour and it wasn't easy for us to get into the pop, top of the pop studios, but we actually didn't want to. And this is probably the experience which clinched that, I should think. Yeah. Going through all that and seeing what this yeah, turned look out at, yeah, like. Tape I mean, all it, over looks, the symbols, you know, it looks pretending appalling. to play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, the legends. Have you? Is that are those commentaries still available with the the videos? If you buy the DVD, yeah, right. there's a whole yeah st- uh, audio track that you can choose where they just chat through all of them. And so I just funny. remember because it was like one of the first songs we talked about, and I was just like jaw on the floor, going, "Oh right, okay, that wasn't what I was expecting you to say." <laughs> Roger a lovely could honesty. Not give a hoot. And I love no. that. It's so crap. It's so crap. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I love that Roger's attitude just allows just that little corner of Brian just to unhook his improper, you know, sense of propriety and, um, yeah. and just yes. go, actually, actually, big confession. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we didn't want to... I, I think it, like, it speaks to how high their standards were and are that they don't want to be involved with something they're not in total control mm. of because, you know, a Queen concert is the pinnacle of live music and and what you get on the top of the yes. pops isn't yes. that but also on a much smaller tiny little minute scale when i've done uh big gigs or tele records or whatever the day is horrible it is five six seven hours sitting in a essentially like an office room that might have some biscuits yeah. and then and they always tell you to get there at like 10 a.m. and it doesn't start until five. So by the time you actually get to do what you were excited about doing, you're just pissed off with so many <laughs> tiny little things. You can't bear the idea of having another cup of coffee. You start to feel like dry your skin mm. and your eyes from just sitting in a, an air-conditioned mm. room. And it sounds like you're kind of complaining and people are like, yeah, but you on this thing, when you excited and you like are when you think about it but the actual practicalities of doing telly especially Mm. this sounds like an enormous humble brag i haven't done much telly and certainly haven't done any recently but it is a ball ache (laughs) yeah (laughs) like it is that's what's nice about a gig is you turn up and then half an hour later you're on stage it's not turn up and then six hours later you're being told where to sit and that you're you're t-shirt strobes so you have to get another option Mm -hmm. and then they have to sew something over the little 
branded badge because you can't have brands yeah. on the show and then you're like are we going to get any hot food and they're like no it's not any hot food you can have another biscuit <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah there's a reason why people like al pacino will still do a broadway play occasionally it's not because it, it's a load less money and a lot more work but it's more thrilling to do live stuff we found a lovely bit of archive of freddie um because as you pointed out earlier on uh Unusually for him, he wrote the lyrics for this before he wrote the melody. Um, and uh, there was a lovely little bit of him talking about that. So let's let's hear from the man, shall we? The, the, the structure of the melody comes comes uh, easy to me. It's, it's, it's the lyrical content that uh, I find hard because I'm not a poet. I'm just a, I just like to write nice little catchy tunes. That's basically what I like to do. But, but in terms of the lyrical content, it's it's difficult. But I hate writing writing lyrics anyway. I wish somebody else could do it. I wish I, wish I had a Bernie Taupin. Mind you, but I'm not, I'm not like that. I like to do it all myself anyway. I'm a greedy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to write little catchy songs like some of the greatest songs <laughs> in the history of <laughs> I'm a what greedy a bitch. What a legend. What an absolute legend. But it's funny, isn't it, when, we, when you think back over the, the podcast we've done already, how, how many times we've waxed lyrically about his lyrics yeah, and, yeah. and the construction of them to hear that it doesn't come easy to them and he hates doing it makes them all the more remarkable yeah it's amazing isn't it, it always seems to be oh, i wrote it in an afternoon it's shit anyway here it is <laughs> yes this whole sense of it being disposable it's but... very it's very british that is what we're like you look at american comedians they're like i've done this amazing video have a look and british people go oh i made this awful thing i barely even tried here look oh sorry yeah and that's like what freddie sounds like yeah. do you think he's just being playful do you really think he genuinely deep down feels i think like he that? i think he's confident in his ability yeah. but also goes yeah this is the hardest bit of the job right yeah right. I don't know. You never hear him really brag, though, about how amazing he is. So Yeah, that's true. Well, he doesn't him, have to because he's just busy. <laughs> no, no. Didn't he, didn't he say, um, I'm going to be a, a legend, I'm going to be immortal, I'm going to be a superstar, all <laughs> yeah. that I kind of stuff? So. I'm not going to be I guess, a star, I guess I'm there was going that to thing. be a legend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think it's just when you apply those those moments of um, yeah, uh, bravado. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> We're the biggest band in the world, I That's think he says. Well, we're the okay. Cecil B. DeMille of rock and roll. Yes. Oh, okay. What a big head. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's all. That's all part of the show. That's all part of the um, the play. Yeah, and I think what you're getting there is the difference between Freddie Mercury, the man being interviewed, and the difference between Queen, the mm. spectacle. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. the showman. And I think it wouldn't have been possible to have been as as big as Queen, the band, personally. <laughs> well, Simon, what a Simon says this week. Thank you very you much. Thanks. Another Thank beautiful you. one. Thank lovely to hear from Fred, and lovely for Brian and Roger to set off a a fight. Producer Giles here to continue listening to this super-sized episode. Download or stream part two. Available now.